Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. So our reading tonight from the Hebrew Bible is from Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, and I'm reading through chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, We're in a worship series right now called Meet the Ancestors, and so we're telling sequentially the stories of persons and a people who encountered the God of the universe and what they discovered about the nature and character of God and then transmitted to their descendants, including us, about that God. Exodus 2, 23. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of the slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why that bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that Moses had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Then God said, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And God said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God said, I'll be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what is this God's name? 
What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. God said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, thus you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and this my title for all generations. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It's not unlike science in this way. Theology, I mean. No scientist imagines that they have solved science. That everything about the universe we inhabit or their very own narrow field of specialty has been discovered. Biologists, chemists, physicists, mathematicians, astronomers, they all see themselves as adding little bits, tiny pieces to the body of knowledge they received from their ancestors in the field. Sometimes scientists make tiny or giant course corrections for the future of the work so that scientific understanding grows and deepens and blooms and more than anything, helps our collective project of human flourishing along on its path. At least, that's what we hope scientists do. Theology is like that. No theologian imagines that they have solved God, that everything about the universe God created and still loves is accessible to us. Biblical linguists, exegetes, historians, archaeologists, doctors of the church, systematic theologians, liberationists, feminists, womanists, queer theologians, they all see themselves as adding tiny pieces, little bits, to the body of knowledge we received from our ancestors in faith. Sometimes they make tiny or giant course corrections for the future of the work so that theological understanding grows and deepens and blooms and more than anything helps our collective project of partnering with God to get more and more of what God wants and draws humanity near to God's heart in the process. At least that's what we hope theologians do. And here I'm counting as a theologian anyone who has seriously considered the nature and character of God. Perhaps on the basis of a single encounter with God or a sustained relationship with God such that they have something to tell the rest of us about how God is, what God does, what God means. Which if you think about it, it means it's very likely that you are a theologian. Whether for you it looks like basking in God's presence or lamenting God's absence or resisting God's insistence or questioning God's existence. Now, for sure, the stories we've heard the last two weeks have been the stories theologians tell. 
where God is the capital P protagonist and humanity is learning and passing along who God is by narrating what God does or did. Abraham was a theologian reporting that God called him out of comfort, promised him a future, and reckoned his trust as righteousness apart from religious rigor or doctrinal conformity. Abraham and Sarah's grandson, Jacob, was a theologian, reporting that God wrestled him to a draw, blessed him for the effort, reconciled him to his brother, and named his descendants Israel in honor of Jacob's stubborn refusal to let go. And now, to fill in the gap between Jacob and today's theologian, Moses. You might remember from last week that Jacob had a bunch of kids by a bunch of women. That whole crew that we watched him parade over to Esau last week, loaded down with gifts galore in hopes that his brother would not murder him on sight. One of those kids was Joseph. Joseph, whose brothers hated him, partly because his dad Jacob loved him the most, a terrible thing for parents to do to their kids, and a legacy from Jacob's own screwed-up family of origin. Yes, biblical foos were as bad as yours, I promise. As in, when Joseph's brothers got a chance to kill him, they almost took it, till one of them had an attack of conscience and decided it would be less wicked but equally permanent to sell him into slavery when a band of traders came by, and then to tell their father that Joseph was dead in order to inflict maximal emotional suffering on the old man. We don't have to compare the hurts your foo may have inflicted with what Joseph endured. Everyone's suffering is their own. It just hurts as bad as it hurts. But perhaps we can agree that this was an extreme example of sibling rivalry and family dysfunction. And maybe if yours was also fucked up in the extreme, you can find a little gospel here in the solidarity of our ancestors in faith who kept meeting God even in the chaotic legacy of their foo. Fucked up families of origin will not keep God away from you. They will not prevent God from getting everything God wants. And isn't it just like God to have God's long ago promise to Abraham track with Joseph? Joseph, who was a victim of human trafficking and then a victim of sexual harassment, and then a victim of a phony justice system, and then a victim of a system of mass incarceration, and then a victim of a game of cronyism so complex that he was always in danger of losing his head, even when he was riding high. I mean, they didn't know back then that this was going to be God's habit, that if you wanted to find God at work, you should look for the losers. But Joseph's testimony to his family of origin, as his story wraps up in the very last chapter of Genesis, goes like this. He says to his brothers, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. It is the primary source material for that Gunger song we sang last week, the one about God making beautiful things out of the dust. 
You could read the whole Joseph saga in Genesis 37 and following if you want. It's good, but be aware it's not safe for work. However, by the end, Joseph and his foo are reconciled, and by now we're seeing a pattern that where God is at work, old wounds can be healed. Now, in the Bible, after Genesis comes Exodus, which is the reading for tonight. And between the two, there's actually quite a long gap. Joseph has long since died. His descendants and all his brother's descendants all live in Egypt, where Joseph had risen from enslavement to the position of the Pharaoh's right-hand man. But subsequent Pharaohs couldn't care less about Joseph's honorable legacy or their predecessor's appreciation of him. And they grew increasingly afraid of the strangers in their midst, the ones who are ethnically and culturally and linguistically different. So a nationalist, anti-immigrant, Egyptian supremacist movement rises up to enslave Jacob's descendants, known as Hebrews, after their Semitic ethnicity and culture and language, they are not yet Israelites because they are not yet a unified people. They're just the descendants of refugees from a famine who came to Egypt a long time ago for a better life and food for their families. The Egyptians, weirdly sporting trucker caps with mega embroidered on them, think about it, depend heavily on these Hebrews' labor, but don't pay them a fair wage or give a single fuck about their health and well-being. They're simply terrified of the strangers in their midst, terrified that they'll be overrun, demoted from their certainty and privilege, and that terror makes them mean and dangerous. Hmm. Imagine that. After several generations of growing less tolerant and more afraid, they're having too many babies. Soon we'll be a minority in our own country, they whimpered. Exodus 1, if you want to check me on that. The current Pharaoh's administration instructs midwives to separate babies from their mothers as soon as they're born, and yes, if they're boys, to make them disappear altogether. Pharaoh, so afraid of those boys could hardly have understood that half a dozen girls and women were the ones he should have kept his eye on. Shifra and Pua, the midwives who would not comply with his genocide. Jochebed and Miriam, the mother and sister of Moses who conspired to keep his newborn self alive. And the Pharaoh's own daughter who spied with her little eye and her maid who fished that floating baby out of the Nile River so the princess could adopt him like a stray puppy. The secret power of overlooked women to change the course of history is another word of gospel embedded in our story tonight. You want to see where God is working? Look where the pharaohs never think to look. Not that any of those women were exactly conscious of their alignment with God's plan for the planet. The midwives were said to fear God in Exodus 1, but the identity of God was rather fuzzy for the Hebrews of that day. It had been hundreds of years since old granddad Jacob's all-night wrestle with the mysterious man who would never say his own name. And it had been hundreds of years of hard labor, 
under worsening circumstances with hope tending toward zero that things would ever get better. Exodus reports that at their lowest point, under the heaviest of oppressions, enduring a slow rolling genocide by the exploitation of their own bodies and the endangerment of their own children, the enslaved descendants of scrappy, blessed Jacob could manage only the inarticulate sob produced under the deepest suffering. Under their slavery, Exodus says, under their slavery, they groaned and cried out. Barely a prayer at all. Just the gut-wrenching protest that life hurts too much. Maybe you know that one. And maybe you are remembering forward to the Apostle Paul's assurance in Romans 8 that God's own spirit helps us when we don't know how to pray, interceding, Paul says, with sighs too deep for words. And there is another glimmer of good news that our ancestors in faith raised guttural prayers to a God whose name they did not know, whose existence they weren't truly sure of, and they were heard because they testified later, this is who God is, the great listening ear at the center of the universe attuned to the cries of the oppressed. God heard their groaning, Exodus 2.23, and God remembered the covenant with their ancestors, and God looked upon the Israelites because that's who they are in God's imagination, not Hebrews, not an ethnicity, not a language group, but a chosen people with a proud heritage named for one of God's favorites, calling to mind the ancestor who did not let go till he got his blessing. And God took notice of them. A frequently raised question when we read this story together is, what was God so busy with all those years between Joseph and Moses, that God didn't notice God's chosen people falling into the clutches of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's insatiable economy? How are we meant to celebrate the God who hears, remembers, looks upon, takes notice now? As if generations of the ones God supposedly loves have not been eaten alive by the rich and powerful, who demand their cities and storehouses, monuments to their wealth for which they have never broken a sweat, but the building of which has certainly broken the backs of countless little ones in need of protection at least, and liberation if you've got some. And I suppose it's here that we bump up against something about God that we don't necessarily like about God. And it was bound to happen, right? You would not trust me as far as you could throw me if every single thing we learned about God from our ancestors in this series turned out to be something wonderful, something advantageous for us, exactly the God we would have made if we made God in our image, God wanting everything we want. You'd fire my ass, right? 
right? Tell me to peddle that idolatry somewhere else to weaker people than your faithful selves. Because you already know that life with God is more like an all-night wrestling match than a picnic. And if you're wrestling with God's absence through all those years between Joseph and Moses, you're taking after your forebears who were named for their capacity to stay in the scuffle. Whatever you do, don't let go. And consider this, too. This thing about God that we don't necessarily like is constitutive of God's nature and character that God is mostly not a puppet master pulling the universe's strings, forcing matter and energy and people to conform to God's ways for the sake of leaving human beings free to love what God loves, free to want what God wants. God rejects the theoronic mode of sovereignty. Theoronic? Is that a word? See, pharaohs are taskmasters, slave drivers, satisfiers of their own appetites who steal from people their will and drive and dignity. And God is not that. God has a way of stepping back a bit, waiting a while to see whether the human family can cobble together enough scraps of justice, enough morsels of mercy to get things right on our own. Sometimes, sometimes we can. Remember Shifra and Pua, Jochebed and Miriam, Pharaoh's daughter and her maid and their choreography of rescue for one of God's innocents? That was surely a win in God's assessment. Sometimes, sometimes after a long, long time, they, we can't or won't. And the groans and cries of the oppressed float to the heavenly places, to the great listening ear at the center of the universe. And our ancestors tell us God hears, God remembers, God looks, God takes notice, and then... God liberates. And we don't entirely understand or appreciate why it took so damn long. But in the tradition of our ancestors in faith, we celebrate when it happens in spite of ourselves and the systems that we are part of. We clap our hands when God liberates the ones with power's knee on their necks sets the arc of the moral universe back on its bending toward justice course, and we feel the relief that it will go in that direction for a little while, with or without us. We breathe a little easier because even Pharaoh knows that God in this moment is getting exactly what God wants. In God's encounter with Moses in that blazing shrubbery, God seems to understand that there will be questions about where God has been for the last 400 years or so. What is your name, Moses asks, just like Jacob did. And just like Jacob, Moses won't let go till he gets an answer. God gives him two. For one, God says, I am who I am all caps. I will be who I will be, 
another way to say it. Or just for short, I am. That's the name God uses in our English language Bibles. Wherever you see L-O-R-D in all caps or in those nifty small caps. It's pretty much untranslatable, that word, and unpronounceable what God says to Moses from that flaming flora. I am who I am is about the best we can do with a state of being verb in the infinitive with no vowels to make actual syllables. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. That is to say, God is God's own reason. If there is a way God is supposed to be, God will have to let us know what that is. This is God at God's most distant, most abstract, most hard to get a hold of. But, and, God also says, you should tell the Israelites that you're about to spring from the prison of their suffering. That I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That is to say, God says, I am right here, right where I have always been, honoring promises I made long before you, honoring the ancestors I loved before I loved you, honoring my own predilection to get involved in my creation, to get my hands dirty in its dust, to work with you to repair what's badly broken and love it back to health. I am the God your ancestors trusted. I am the God your ancestors wrestled with. And now it's your turn to trust me and wrestle with me. And I will be your God, and you will be my people. Now giddy up, Moses. We've got ancestors to honor, a pharaoh to bring down, and a slave revolt to lead. And Moses said, well, you're a theologian. What would you say to a God like that? Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace. Peace.